Welcome to the first of three episodes by Common Ground Berlin and Goethe Institute, commemorating a century of German radio, but doing so by exploring radio around the world. I'm Common Ground Berlin's host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and once a month for the next three months, we'll bring you stories from influential and interesting broadcasters worldwide with a lasting effect on radio or who've been profoundly inspired by the medium. Radio Around the World is brought to you by the Goethe Institute. Thank you to all of our friends and partners for making this series possible. First, we'll hear from a man who likely needs no introduction if you listen to American Public Radio, or NPR. This Indiana native has hosted NPR Morning Edition for nearly two decades and has recorded his show in some interesting places. For example, with me while we floated down the Nile on a traditional Egyptian boat called a felucca. I asked Steve Inskeep about his favorite radio memories. I remember when my family used to drive from Indiana to Florida at Christmas time. We would get in the car and drive as many as 24 hours to various locations in Florida and spend a week down there. And on the way, we would turn on the radio and you'd listen all night. And because I'm 55, this was before there was, you know, the internet and people were looking at phones and and it was kind of magical that you'd be driving through Tennessee and be hearing a basketball game in the middle of the night from Iowa, hundreds of miles away on an AM radio station. And it just went through the air. And I loved that. I loved it when I was a little kid and it was late at night and we would drive all night and I would be assigned to sit up front with my dad and supposedly keep him from falling asleep. I remember the smell of the coffee when my mom would open the thermos and the smell would fill the the car. I loved that. I remember the crackling static and hearing the ball games on the radio. So did that influence your decision to choose a career in radio? Yes. I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be in radio, but I grew up loving the radio. I have so many really specific, vivid memories like the one that I described. Uh, My brothers and I still joke about particularly ridiculous things we heard on the radio during these trips or an advertisement in Kentucky that we heard 14 times on our way across Kentucky. I have memories of listening to the Indy 500, a 500-mile car race in Indiana on the radio. I have memories of listening to Purdue University football and basketball games on the radio. And then when I got to high school, there was a high school radio station. And I had an opportunity myself to call play-by-play of football and basketball games. I guess I should explain when I say football, I mean American football, this ridiculous and deadly sport that, that we have in the United States. I got to do that on the radio. And so I'd had this kind of living experience with it before I thought of it really as a career. Was it difficult to be able to do this play-by-play on radio of football? I mean, at this time, I assume that TV was coming into play. Absolutely, of course. I mean, I'm not that old. I mean, there was television. But if you're listening to the radio, you needed to paint a picture of the motion on the court. You needed to like remember a million numbers of people and try to remember names and and, and all that. But you were trying to give the sense of what the pass looked like as it went through the air, um, of what the field was like if it was raining and muddy, uh, what the brutality of a hit may have been. And I found that really exciting. And it was phenomenal practice for what I do now. 
And you guys know this very well because you have reported from many different places and broadcast back to Berlin or broadcast back to the United States. And you're trying to describe a crowd on the streets of Cairo. And a couple of sentences and just a little bit of sound can sometimes take people there in a more intimate way than the video would. The television image from someone's hotel balcony looking down on the millions of people, that's one thing. But to be down in that crowd and to hear what it's like to be down in that crowd is an entirely different experience. I think of it, I mean, if I do it well, somebody else will decide if I do it well. But if I do it well, I think of it almost like novel writing, the way that you feel like you had the experience that the character in a well-written novel is having. And it's the little details that you capture, the little sense of motion, the way someone's arm looks, or the way their head is tilted, or the way a car rolls by just as you're making a particular point that takes people there. You've been at NPR for more than two decades, much of it hosting Morning Edition. What is the most memorable experience you've had as a host there? I could name a lot, but I guess I'll name some road trips that we have taken. There was a road trip that a couple of colleagues and I took from Tunis across Libya to Cairo in 2012, which was probably the only year in recent history and the only few months of that year in recent history when that trip was possible. It was after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of Libya during the Arab Spring, and before an attack in Benghazi, Libya, that killed the U.S. ambassador, Chris Stevens, this little window of time. And we started in Tunis talking with people across these three countries that had been affected in different ways by the Arab Spring. And we drove across Tunisia and across the border into Libya, and we stopped in Tripoli, and we met Chris Stevens, the U.S. ambassador then. And we continued down the coast and stopped in ancient Roman cities. Leptis Magna in Libya seems to me to have more preserved Roman ruins all in one place than probably Rome. And it's like they just left. This stuff's just all sitting there. The roofs are gone, but the walls and the streets and, and everything is still there. It's amazing. And we continued on to Benghazi itself. And this is the early summer of 2012. And we heard about an Islamist demonstration and went down to see it and ended up driving among these gentlemen with gun trucks. And at some point, uh, they stopped and we got out of our vehicle and they got out of theirs. And I was interviewing a guy and I said, what do you want? And he says, I want to kill Americans or whatever he said. I mean, he said something. And you've been in interviews like this where someone says that. And of course, they mean nothing toward you by this. They're giving an opinion and at the same time being very polite about it. It's a bizarre, bizarre experience. And then we continued on our trip eastward and ended up in Cairo. And there was that attack in Benghazi just a few months later in which Ambassador Stevens was killed. So it was an astonishing, uh, beautiful, inspiring, and deeply sad experience all rolled into one. Uh, and we've had a few other road trips like that. I remember going all the way along the U.S.-Mexico border, for example. There have been a bunch of them. Well, a lot of your work is also in the studio having in-depth conversations with individuals. Who would you say was your most difficult interviewee and why? Oh, wow. My most difficult interviewee. It depends on what you mean. I am thinking of someone during the election year of 2020. He needed to demonize the media to make his point. And so he kept, and it was a recorded interview, he kept telling me what I thought 
you believe this, but in reality, it's that. And I had to interrupt him at least twice and say, why do you keep telling me what I think? I'm interested in what you think. And my objective in that interview was not to yell at him or tell him off, but to continue in conversation with this person such that people listening could understand who he was and, and what he stood for. And I think probably he showed me. May I ask you, Steve, was that interviewee Donald Trump? Uh, no, no, it was a Trump supporter. And his name was Michael Anton, A-N-T-O-N. And I'm not telling you anything that wasn't on the radio. You can go listen to the broadcast because we kept in the back and forth. But there have been other interviews that have been Difficult in other ways. I am remembering uh, the lead singer. Maybe she's going to hear this. I, I hope she's well. I haven't talked with her in years. But this was way at the beginning of my tenure at Morning Edition. We had an interview with the lead singer of a group called the Heartless Bastards. Wonderful group. Wonderful music. But they were very young. And she was, I mean, I guess shy might be the word. She's very nervous about doing an interview. And I uh, got her in the studio. And one of her bandmates came in and sat with her, I think because he was aware how very nervous that she was. And it was very frustrating because I was asking just very simple conversational questions like you would have with somebody over coffee. I mean, it's a music interview. And she was giving one or two word answers. And I remembered some advice that I had received from Leanne Hansen, a great NPR host of times past, that if the person is not being communicative, just shut up yourself. And they will fill the silence at some point uh, with words. But I didn't understand how deeply anxious this person was. So I sat there. And just now I, I was silent for a second or two. And you may have noticed that that was kind of suspenseful, that second or two. That was four seconds, I think, three or four seconds just now. Very suspenseful. According to the recording, we sat there looking at each other for 90 seconds. It was unbelievable. And at the end of 90 seconds, a tear came down her eye. And it was clear this was just deeply <laughs> uncomfortable and not going anywhere. And finally, the bandmate who'd been sitting nearby spoke up and started saying something, which was great. And so I had his microphone opened and I talked to him for a minute. And then she recovered herself and said a few things. And we ended up doing a, a little short story. We got enough material out of them for a story, because really all I wanted was for people to hear their music as good music. Radio ultimately is just people talking. And you're at your best on the radio if you just sit down and have a conversation. But it is hard for many people to do that with the artifice of the studio and the microphone in your face and the nervousness and the concern about what if you say something wrong. And every once in a while, somebody is really, really stressed out by it. What's a tidbit that you can share about how you do your radio work that people perhaps don't know about? When I meet people, they ask, because they know it's a very early morning show, they will ask, what time do you get up in the morning? And so I tell them, and it's true, I get up at three o'clock in the morning. I'm usually at work by four o'clock in the morning. And the broadcast begins at five o'clock, as you know very well, Soraya, five o'clock Eastern time, and it cannot be one second late. And so that's a big part of the routine is just being up and just being awake. And sometimes you don't sleep well. I have kids. Sometimes uh, the kids keep me up a little bit late. Sometimes I'm just stressed out about something and don't sleep very well. Different things happen. Every once in a while, it's a late night because of work. You know, the, someone says the Secretary of State will talk to you at 7 p.m. And you would really rather be 
getting ready for bed at that time, but that's the time that they have. And so you go and you do the work and you just don't get very much sleep. And the job is to soldier on and get through to the next uh, several hours in the far end where maybe you can take a nap on a couch. With so many different types of media nowadays, do you think radio is a dying medium? Why or why not? I think radio or audio, let us say, is here to stay because it fits the modern sensibility. It is made for multitasking in a way that some other media are not. Maybe one of the reasons that linear television seems to have declined is that you kind of need to sit and watch it. And radio is different. Audio is different. People wake up to the radio or wake up to the podcast up first, which they might hear on their smart speakers. People will take us then with them into the shower and they're going to be listening while they're showering they're listening while they're brushing their teeth and then they get in the car and they turn on the car radio and they can drive while listening to the radio uh, you can also text and drive but it's not recommended it's not really safe i mean people do it um certainly but the fact that it engages your ears and your mind and leaves your eyes and your hands free allows you to integrate it into your life in a really intimate way and for busy people also a really efficient way. I mean, I've noticed with the podcast Up First, which I'm going to brag for a moment, is one of the most popular podcasts in the United States. Morning Edition is the most popular radio news program in the United States. And Up First is not the most popular podcast, but right up there. Millions of people listen. They started this podcast thinking we need younger, we need a younger audience. And we absolutely get that. The median age of people listening to that podcast is 37, which is a little bit younger than America. Like the demographics of the podcast are America writ large. But in addition to younger people listening to this podcast, I have learned anecdotally from talking to people, a lot of like super busy elite people are listening to this podcast because it fits their frantic lifestyles and it's a thing that they can listen to when they choose when they get up when they have 10 or 12 minutes and they're getting informed while they're doing other stuff and going on with their day and they don't have time to watch a cable television news program for who knows how long or frankly they don't have time to listen to maybe our radio program but they're listening to this podcast so i'm aware that millions and millions of people are experiencing us specifically in different ways and i don't think that's going away like next year or anything and you can experience steven's keep of npr in a different medium as well in this case writing his latest book which is out this fall is differ we must how lincoln succeeded in a divided america Our second interviewee is from the United Kingdom. His name is Kerry Jones, and his passion is homegrown radio, most recently in the little town of Shaftesbury in Dorset, England. Kerry is also famous for launching in 2007 what was then the UK's smallest radio station. I asked the 53-year-old whether he grew up listening to radio. Yes, and in that unhealthy, want-to-work-in-radio way, listening to far too much radio and probably not listening to the, the right stuff, not listening like a normal person would. You know, you get in the car and you annoy your friends that you're in the car with because when the commercials come on, you put the radio up louder because you want to hear the ad breaks, and as soon as they come into the song that comes out of the ad breaks, you turn the radio down. <laughs> 
And that would annoy your friends. Yeah, because most normal people don't like that, do they? That They listen for the songs. So how did you come to choose radio as a profession? The way I got into radio, I went to school in Cardiff in South Wales on Welsh, and there was an option. I hated sports, and you could get out of double games, sports, on a Wednesday afternoon if you did community work. And there was an orthopaedic hospital next door. It was at the time of the Falklands conflict. Service personnel were being rehabilitated, brought back to Britain after the conflict, and there was a demand to do hospital radio programmes. There's a thing in Britain where there's a closed-circuit radio station for a hospital, generally. They've been going on for years a good training ground for actual radio so i got to make radio programs and hang around the radio station rather than have to do boring rugby or play cricket so that's that was my first taste at the age of gosh probably about 14 15 and what is special about radio to you besides getting out of sports that you perhaps didn't want to play (laughs) to me radio Particularly, and this is the key difference, I think, although it translates across all types of radio broadcasting, is making the communication and making a difference. I mean, I'm working primarily and have worked mainly in small markets because I prefer that. I've I've done London stuff, but I like small towns because you get to see the people that you serve when you walk out and you get to be told that what you've done has actually impacted on somebody's life. You found their lost dog, you found whatever service they require, you've taken on the local authority of the council and got a solution for somebody who thought there was nowhere else to go. So it's that power really of of connecting with people and sharing conversations and just being part of somebody's life and and sharing that joy. That's what radio is all about to me. It's not music, it's about conversation. Well, I've read that you were involved in creating what is said to be the smallest radio station in UK history. Tell us about that. So that was on the Isles of Scilly, and I ran it for 10 years. Um, The Isles of Scilly are 20 or so miles off the coast of the southwestern tip of England, and there's five islands with about 2,000 people between all of the islands, and we set up a self-sustaining, entirely local independent station covering those islands and operated it for 10 years and so at the time it was uh, the smallest station I think there's with the use of technology now with you uh, able to do things much cheaper and do more stuff online I think there probably are radio stations that claim to target smaller geographic areas but certainly in terms of a licensed FM radio station that was the smallest then in the country. My understanding is that you were broadcasting from a boat shed surrounded by lobster pots and rusting anchors and all kinds of fishing equipment. How did that work, especially in bad weather? Well, that's part of the story. Um, We had this strange thing in Britain where you could have a limited period trial to establish demand for a radio station. You could go on air for 28 days. They called them restricted service licenses or RSLs. You got very low power at about 25 watts. And so... There was no way we could fit out a proper studio for those trial broadcasts. We did several over a course of, I think, about three, four years on the Isles of Scilly. And so we used a boat shed to broadcast from. And yes, all the lobster pots and the various fishing paraphernalia and all sorts of storage items all sort of stacked up around us. So when we got the full-time radio licence, we moved into um, converting premises to make the radio station, which was right opposite the beach. And it was a a 24-hour-a-day radio station, correct? Yeah, we were. Yeah, all all through the night. So what did you broadcast for 24 hours? I mean, how much news can there possibly be with these small islands? Well, I mean, we broadcast back-to-back music through the night, and now in in Shaftesbury we're all speech for a town of 8,000 people, and and we broadcast ambient sounds through the night. There's no point putting your great material on at 3 o'clock in the morning in a town of 8,000 people. So through the night we have a thing called the Soundscape, where we make a real-time recording lasting 
eight hours in a various point around the area each night, perhaps next to a stream, in a meadow, and just play back in real time the recording the next night or later in the week. So you get to hear the sound of dusk in summer and then owls through the night and then the sound of daybreak. And we just punctuate that with a recording of the town hall clock chiming each hour and the voiceover announcing the hour. So that's what we have through the night here, which has actually bizarrely gained quite a following. People find it quite um, soothing. Your current project is a community radio station born out of your This Is Alfred podcast. Tell us about that. So I've always worked in radio, and after 10 years on the Isles of Scilly, living on an island is kind of tough. You know, it's uh, 2,000 people, more than 20 miles off, off the mainland, and the winters were very long because you're out in the Atlantic. I did 10 years of it, and I was kind of done, and decided I wanted to do something different. So I did a radio travel show, syndicated that for two years. Great fun. Got a bit bored after about a year of waiting at airports because I was away for 30 weeks of the year and kind of lost my sense of being anchored to a place. I'd chosen to live in Shaftesbury because it's a gorgeous town, got involved with community groups and realised there were lots of good things they were doing but there was no outlets for them to shine there was no way in which people were knowing what good work was being done in the community uh, the local paper was all about if it bleeds it leads type headlines even though there's no crime here you know they'd run a story like knife crime doubles because there was one knife crime in a year um, so I decided to do something different and to showcase what positive contributions people were making so I made a weekly podcast it became quite popular then I won a radio license I applied to the regulator to get a license for a not-for-profit station then during all of that covid happened we got wind we assumed that the prime minister of the day boris johnson was going to announce the lockdown so what was a weekly podcast my team of volunteers who were helping prepare for the community radio station i said we're going to go daily from the 20th of march 2020 and we did and we've been daily making an hour-long local news and magazine program for a town of um, 8,000 people seven days a week ever since we've not missed a day we've not run under one hour and we've done it consistently and now that's on the FM radio station as well which went on air on Valentine's Day last year. That's amazing and are your volunteers do they have a, a radio background or are these people that you train? No, they're all real people, normal people, people who have a passion or interest for the town or a specific hobby or something that's special to them. I think there's a lot of myths about radio. You don't really need special skills. Yeah, we're given pointers on how to record usually on a mobile phone that's the device people are most comfortable with and you find that people are okay going out and talking on a mobile and interviewing on a mobile you get a microphone in front of somebody they get intimidated by a mic so all of our volunteers will record using everyday handheld devices and use editing software we use Hindenburg to package material up and send it to me and I put it into the broadcast chain but we we operate this entire 24 7 all speech radio station with the rule that none of our content comes from more than five miles away from Shaftesbury, our town. So we don't have any national news or information. It's entirely local. And uh, we do it without any physical studios. It's all done in the cloud, virtually, using everyday devices. So our running costs are exceptionally low. And we're running for about £3,000, £4,500 American dollars a year. So radio is actually easier to make nowadays than maybe 100 years ago when it started in Germany, for example. Yes, because you've got technology that makes life a lot simpler. And also, 
I think the regulatory environment has changed. I mean, if, if we'd have gone to the UK broadcast regulator 10 years ago and said in a small town of 8,000 people, we want to run an all-speech station, they would have thought we'd gone crazy because speech is expensive and they just wouldn't think it was viable or possible. But we've kept running costs exceptionally low, so we don't need very much commercial income to break even we need you know just a handful of clients so we have you know and tops uh, 60 seconds commercial airtime an hour it's very much speech focused and very much local and doesn't have the irritations you have to have if you're running much bigger commercial operation with a lot of money going out on infrastructure and those sort of resources do you keep officials accountable because you're there i mean do you feel that this is something that radio is better able to do than newspapers Yes, to a degree. The difficulty with radio is that you need sound and you need to talk to people and you don't always get people who want to talk. If, if you've got some bad news stories, they might, may view it. They're not going to be crawling all over you to do an interview. Um, so to that end, we have to rely on things being shared in the public domain, going to council meetings, recording the council meetings and taking sound bites from that and making a radio package, a bit like the BBC Radio 4 Today in Parliament programme. That's how we approach that. Now, of course, any public meeting you can record legally in the UK, so we do that and we make it clear that we are recording and that's how we, we cover that base. There are times when we know stuff that we can't get anybody to go on record and say on tape and whereas the local paper would possibly run that we can't because we need the sound to go with it but the upside of that is that we don't generally get the fake news accusation because people can actually hear on our broadcasts on our website on our listen again facility what the person who's been quoted has said they might think they're talking rubbish or lying but the fact is our reporting is of what was said and that makes quite a difference is there a radio alfred story that you or your team have done that you are particularly proud of it doesn't have to be something that is necessarily big but when you get somebody calling you up in tears and saying thank you then you know you've made a difference because nobody else has nobody else has stepped up and offered to do something and when you do little things like that it could just be not even a news item just finding a lost pet by putting out an announcement or fixing a problem for somebody or somebody has had a problem with the council you've stepped in you've found a clear path for them it's palpable you can feel how relieved they are and they know that it's down to you. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in one of our pubs on a Friday night with a friend, and I was listening to a conversation with three old guys talking behind me about a local news story, and they were well informed. They'd listened to our news broadcast that morning, and they could have only heard about that story by listening to us. And I thought, that's nice, actually, the fact that they're talking about it, they're informed, and that's what we've done. We've done our job. Why is your radio station called Alfred? Does the name have any significance? Very much so. So our town was founded in the year 888 by King Alfred the Great, King Alfred who fought off the invading Danes and is seen as uh, an English folklore hero, really. He brought the first education system um, into what was the, the Kingdom of Wessex, which made the foundations for England, brought in some of the first um, education and, and legal measures. So he's revered to some extent, and he founded our town, and there's a statue of him in the town. There's lots of references in businesses and uh, street names to Alfred, and we thought, as is the was the trend a couple of years ago, to name radio stations after people like you know, Jack. I thought Alfred would be a good name because with radio going digital on the alpha numeric displays on car dashboards, you'll be first in the queue. So do you think that there's a future for community radio? 
I think there's a future for community radio if you provide something the community wants. I hear a lot of community radio stations where they're trying to be mini commercial radio stations. You don't hear this in America, but you hear it in Britain where people just want to be an old school radio station because they either worked at an old school radio station before stations got bought up by networks or they hankered after that position. I don't think you've got much life left if you just play records and have people talking between the records. If you just have local information that people can source elsewhere from the internet, I don't think you've got more than five years left because of the advance of AI. I think if you provide unique content that nobody else has got and it's you putting that stuff on the internet first, then whatever comes in in terms of you know fake news readers fake presenters with ai that can read stuff online if you've got it out on the radio or streaming through your uh, online service before it's been uploaded and one of those devices can read it then you've stolen a march on anybody else and it's all about unique content so any station that's doing something that cannot be found anywhere else as is often the way with radio i think you're fine content is really king never so much as it is now That was Carrie Jones in Dorset, England. Alfred Freetime. Antiques will be on sale in the town hall from 10 till 4 today. If you're a brave You can boss, listen to his Radio Alfred at 107.3 FM in Shaftesbury or stream it via thisisalfred.com. Africa is a place where radio is still a, if not the, primary communication tool because it's tough to find decent internet on the continent. Even we experienced African internet difficulties and ended up having to postpone our interview with veteran broadcaster John Masugu because of the terrible connection in the outskirts of Zimbabwe's capital. John, who is a media consultant, was UNESCO's campaign coordinator for World Radio Day earlier this year. I asked the 67-year-old what role radio played in his early life. It was very important. I grew up in a radio family. My father worked at a broadcasting station, the then Southern Rhodesia Broadcasting Corporation, which became the Rhodesia Broadcasting Corporation, and then later the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation. He was not an announcer. He was a non-microphone member of staff as a commissioner, but he brought home a lot of stories about radio. And he generally loved to open the radio for us and would listen to many programs, news bulletins, a book reading, dramas, music shows, storytelling, you know, all those programs. And back then he would come home and tell us about these personalities whom we heard on radio and then tell us about what that person is like in day-to-day life because he worked with them. And I also had two uncles who were radio broadcasters, my father's young brothers. Again, they inspired me in particular to be a broadcaster. And uh, yeah, they did a variety of programs. And when I joined in 1974, it was like I was following in their footsteps. Now, radio was segregated back then. I mean, there was black radio and there was white radio, uh, just like there was segregation in in society. Yes, Uh, Rhodesia. It was a colony until 1980, a colony of the British. But of course, back in 1965, a party in then Rhodesia 
unilaterally declared independence from the UK. They felt that the British were getting closer to the African nationalists in granting them independence, like uh, what was happening in other neighboring countries. So they broke away and uh, they sort of stuck to a white supremacist type of government uh, where most of the things were separated between blacks and whites. So that happened again in radio, whereby you had the general service, which was also called the European service, and it was only broadcasting in English, and all the announcers who worked there were English-speaking and all white. And then on the African service, the management was white, but all the announcers were black, broadcasting in the local uh, black languages. So that was the structure at that time until our independence in 1980. So then when you went into radio, were you working for a black radio station or network? Yes, I was working for the African service of the Rhodesia Broadcasting Corporation, which was broadcasting programs for blacks. But like I said, our management was white. Those people who held senior positions, even at the African service, the director was white, the assistant director was white, and uh, the secretarial staff were white. We had uh, also a few technical operators who were white and then others who were black. And then the majority of the announcers were black. At one time, they also had white people who could speak local languages also broadcasting uh, on the channel where the lady used to do women's programs until they employed uh, black women. So, yes, uh, I worked for the African service, which was a predominantly black in terms of programming, although there were also some English programs which were broadcast, but the main programs were in the local languages of Shona and Ndebele. So what role did radio play in Zimbabwe's fight for independence? Radio played a very, very important role in the fight for independence. Locally, radio avoided you know, a lot of programs about nationalism or mention of those who were fighting to change the system, who were fighting for black majority rule, be they Zimbabweans or neighboring South Africa. For instance, many people did not know that that was a person called Nelson Mandela who was languishing in jail because he was hardly mentioned in most broadcasts, uh, so much that even broadcasters uh, like myself knew very, very little about him. So that was locally. And there were also programs that were propaganda programs produced by the Ministry of Information, which would have discussions and interviews just to discourage people from supporting those who were fighting in the bush, who they called terrorists. So that was the situation inside the country. But those who were running the nationalist movements set up radio stations in different parts of the world, and the world supported the nationalist movements of South Africa, Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique, by providing frequencies on shortwave and medium wave for them to broadcast programs that would be listened to inside their countries. So in Zimbabwe, you had a radio station in Russia, 
you know, uh, run by the Zimbabwe African People's Union led by Joshua Nkomo, which people would listen to uh, in many parts of Zimbabwe on shortwave, coming out very clearly. Then you had one running from Ethiopia, again, run by Zimbabweans who are now in exile, broadcasting into the country about the message of mobilizing to fight the regime that was uh, uh, ruling then. Then Tanzania again gave... Uh, transmitters to the liberation movement to do the same. But as the war intensified after the mid-70s, most of the broadcasts were coming now from Lusaka, neighboring Lusaka in Zambia, on the Zapu side, and then from Mozambique in Maputo, from the Zanu side. Those mobilized a lot of people who crossed en masse to join the liberation war across the border. So radio played a very, very important role. And those people, by the way, who were running those stations, particularly those of ZANU, who later won the elections, are the ones who came back home to run radio and television and the media in Zimbabwe. And those people who were outside running radio, especially from Maputo and from uh, Lusaka, Zambia, got their training from the Yugoslavs and also the Germans, especially the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, which then was led by Erich Honecker and so forth. They got that kind of moral support. And these are the guys who then came uh, to transform radio uh, in Zimbabwe. You mentioned the GDR's help with radio during the fight for independence, John. But has Germany been involved with radio in Zimbabwe in other ways? Right. I have to mention that Germany, through its foundations, uh, played important roles technically uh, in bringing equipment, recording equipment, setting up studios, training announcers. I am a product of uh, the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung because after television news, I moved to Radio 4, which had lots of support uh, from the Germans. We had so many German trainers coming into Zimbabwe. We had German uh, broadcasters being seconded to work with us, and we formed committees that even traveled to other countries, supported by the Germans in order uh, to enhance our broadcasting. I trained at the Deutsche Welle after BBC. I did my radio management at the Deutsche Welle. And so many people were trained in Germany. So both Germany, the West Germany, and the the GDR before uh, the the two uh, were joined together. And even the the Goethe Institute that we are talking about, in the early years of independence, we had some relationship where we even used to record some of their content in order uh, to broadcast it on Radio 4 because the Germans became very interested in, in Radio 4, which they were supporting through the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. We've discussed how powerful radio is in Africa. Are governments there helping or hurting radio on the African continent? Well, they do help the development of radio, the installation of transmitters, Like in Zimbabwe, they've opened up the airwaves. We now have private radio stations. We now have community radio stations. Just the last week, I was going around the country and, uh, yeah, I was was able to pick uh, most of the community radio stations very, very clearly. In fact, not even the national radio stations that belong to ZBC and those that belong to Zim Papers. So, yeah, and uh, the ZBC ones and the Zim Papers ones are, are government stations. And then we have the private ones there, although not many stay in the sense of the word private, but they also have a a wide reach around the country. But of course, government has a hold on the public media 
the public media is not all that free. Most of the messages are pro-government, very little dissenting voices there. So that's where their involvement becomes more pronounced. Like right now, during the election season, most of the sports announcements, most of the promotions, most of the jingles are those of the ruling party. Very rarely would you hear those of the opposition parties. So that's where they've got a hold as far as I can see. You were UNESCO's International Campaign Coordinator for World Radio Day this year. The theme was radio and peace, especially the role independent radio plays in conflict resolution. Can you give me an example of how radio has helped bring peace or resolve conflicts? Yes, radio has played a very pivotal role in that area by bringing different voices together to talk peace bringing messages of peace. They may not be mentioned specifically as peace, but the nature and the way they are coined, the way they are put together is in such a way that different people who otherwise can hurt each other or can uh, you know, do harm to each other are brought together to discuss how they can live in harmony. Radio also brings examples of how other nations and how other communities have lived peacefully. They've had peaceful coexistence. And by sharing such discussions, such messages on radio, people learn that it is not always necessary to be at each other's throat. And also uh, messages are generally about peace, especially with us here in Zimbabwe. Like I said, we're in election season. That is preached that while you differ, it's not necessary to differ uh, physically by fighting. You can differ in opinions, but that should not lead to fights. And different people from different nationalities also come and share their experience about elections. Again, on radio, uh, which is a motivator to Zimbabweans who will be listening that they can promote peace. Even those uh, tribes within the country uh, who were not all that close they are brought closer to each other through different radio programs where they also hear about stories from other countries, how they peacefully coexisted, and also giving them a, a bit of uh, history that we were once one. There are other things that may have divided us along the way, uh, but we are one even if we now speak different languages and so forth. So the radio plays that important role because it can do so in different languages. It can do so in the language of those people who cannot even read and write and they can enjoy. Even the music that is played on radio, play music that is a positive message, again, it contributes towards a peace. Recent studies show that radio is still more important to people in Africa than the internet. Why is that? Yes, it's because of connectivity. Uh, yesterday, you and I were, and someone in the studio were joking about how difficult it was for me in Harare connected to you. What more 30 kilometers outside Harare? That is the, the problem. We have some areas uh, for many years which have never received the internet signal. Uh, ever since it started, uh, they have not received it. But of course, even radio had challenges in the past that uh, uh, it would not be received until they introduced community radio. But yeah, coming to the internet, the main problem is 
connectivity is very, very difficult and also very expensive to listen to radio in, on the internet. It becomes expensive. So even if you are sending a voice note or you are sending a, a video, people would warn you against that, say, no, please don't send me that because it means I have to buy bundles and then download that. I don't have enough money. So it's still very expensive for the ordinary person in Africa to be able to have that luxury we normally have when we're in Europe of just being on the internet, on high-speed internet all the time. So that, that is the major problem, yes. There are so many languages spoken in Africa. How do you overcome that challenge to make sure radio reaches a wide enough audience? Well, fortunately, here we have 16 official languages, which is not much as compared to other African countries. So there are programs, news bulletins in those languages. And I think, by and large, that is still manageable uh, in terms of scheduling the different programs for those language groups. But they become more clearly focused when they are on the local, commercial, or on the community radio stations, because they will be focusing on a, a region or on a community. That was John Musugu, whom we reached at home in Harare, Zimbabwe. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson of Common Ground Berlin, and thank you for listening. We hope you will join us in October for part two of our project with Goethe Institute, commemorating a century of German radio. Common Ground Berlin's senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners, in addition to Goethe Institute, are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. CGBerlinPodcast.